What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, good friends. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod, and thank you for joining us. Well, with the midterms now behind us, we decided to take a look today at some major foreign policy developments that haven't received a lot of attention lately. First among them, the ongoing war in Ukraine, now in its 11th month. What's the latest? Can Ukraine continue to hang on and push Russia back? And what can we expect from a desperate Vladimir Putin? On another front, a lot of Americans and Israelis have raised serious concerns about the new extreme right-wing government that Bibi Netanyahu's trying to put together in Israel. Concerns have also been raised about the recent visit of China's President Xi to Saudi Arabia. After all the help we've given Saudi Arabia, why are they now playing footsie with a major American competitor, if not adversary? And did the United States make a good deal in swapping American prisoner Brittany Griner for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. Well, for help sorting all of this out, we turn today to our resident foreign policy guru and national security expert, Joe Cirincioni, former president of the Plowshares Fund. Joe Cirincioni, good to connect with you again, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you. So much to talk about, Joe. But let's start with the war in Ukraine. You and I have talked about it several times before. It's amazing to me that the Ukraine has been able to hold on so long. Uh, but it seems to me now that they're not only holding on, but they may have the upper hand. Uh, am I wrong? How do you read what the status quo is today? I think you're right, Bill. In fact, most uh, military experts would agree with you that the pace of the war is in Ukraine's favor. They continue to hold the initiative. They continue to advance pretty much along the entire front, ranging from north to south, all the way down to Crimea. The mm -hmm. Russians continue to be in retreat. And they, in, for example, in this week, they, the Russians have made some marginal territorial gains. We're talking about a few kilometers in various areas, particularly around the small city of Bakhmut uh, in the Donbass region, but they're suffering huge losses. Uh, sometimes Ukrainians say that 500 Russians have died in the assault on just that small, that small city. Uh, the, the Ukrainians continue to conduct uh, imaginative operations. Last week, they used dr long-range drones for the first time to hit Russian targets uh, yeah. hundreds of miles behind the lines. Yesterday, there was a an explosion in Crimea that Ukraine claims was, was undertaken by um, Crimean resistance forces. So, yeah, the Ukraine war goes on. Ukraine is slowly gaining back its territory. There are some expectations that you could see another rapid advance like we saw around uh, Kharkiv and around Kherson just a few weeks ago. And people are looking at the Luhansk province or perhaps down near Hershan itself. So keep stay tuned. 
this this war is a long way from over. What what has turned the corner? How are they able to do this? Is it um, more advanced American weapons that they're getting, or what? Uh, that is that has been a big factor, particularly the the high Mars and the one fifty five millimeter artillery uh, that the U.S. has been supplying now for months. The high Mars are as a rocket. Uh, uh, mobile rocket launchers that can mm-hmm. range 40, 50 miles beyond the front lines. and the, 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 But the Ukrainians have used these weapons very smartly. Instead of conducting full-on you know, infantry uh, advances into the teeth of Russian fire, they've been uh, cu- cutting around the edges of the Russian forces, cutting communication lines, logistical lines, basically starving out um, hmm. the, the Russians from supplies. And then when those weakened Russian forces are stretched very thin, as the UK Ministry of Intelligence says that the Russian army is overextended and exhausted, then they will punch through and you'll see routes like you did up in mm-hmm. Kharkiv and Hershan. That's the kind of thing people are, are looking for up in the Luhansk province. And the, the, the Russians are trying to compensate for this, trying to rush untrained, mobilized forces to the front lines. But as the Ukrainian says, those poor people are just being served up as meat. They're, they're being rushed into battle and then cut down by Ukrainian fire. But there's no doubt, right? I mean, Russia is still in this to win it. I mean, they haven't rolled over. They haven't given up. Oh, no. And so to compensate for these their failures on the battlefield, you know, Putin has tried to winterize winter. And what he's been very successful at is these long range drone and missile strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure, the power, the water supplies, the electrical mm-hmm. supplies. And he's knocked out at least a quarter of the U- Ukrainian electricity. And you see the capital city of Kiev routinely plunged in, into darkness. You know, he's trying to wage his version of the Battle of Britain when the Nazis tried to pummel the English into submission by, by constant air raids on London. Well, he's trying to do the same thing. But the history of this kind of warfare, strategic bombardment, indicates that it never works. It didn't work in World War II when Hitler or then the Allies did. It didn't work in Korea or Vietnam. didn't work for the Russians in Afghanistan when they were trying to pummel the Afghans into submission. Instead of breaking the will of the Ukrainian people, it seems to be intensifying it. And every report you read indicates that the Ukrainians are are in this to the end. They they believe that they can outlast uh, Putin. Putin is trying to break the Ukrainian spirit and more importantly, perhaps break Western support for Ukraine over what's going to be a tough winter in, in Europe with the energy right. supplies rather short. Um, I don't think either strategy is going to work, but that's his game. That's what he's playing out. And while Europe remains uh, united at this point, Russia is looking for partnerships uh, in other areas. I mean, the Washington Post reporting this week that uh, they formed this partnership with Iran, which given our relationship with Iran is certainly troubling, Joe? Absolutely. I mean, he's because of the effectiveness of the sanctions, not perfect, but pretty tight. Putin has had trouble um, building back some of the supplies of missiles and even artillery and other high tech weaponry. Uh, which will rely heavily on Western components. So he's turning to other countries to try to get this. And a key country is Iran. In fact, it is the key country from right now. That's why U.S. officials have say, say that this relationship has turned into a full-fledged uh, defensive alliance with 
uh, Iran supplying hundreds of its uh, low-tech but very effective drones mm-hmm. that are being used oh. to target the uh, Ukrainian electric uh, infrastructure. Uh, and apparently, Iran has just agreed now to help Russia produce these drones in Russia and in the short term to supply hundreds more of them, as well as uh, cooperating in other um, uh, high-tech weapons. So uh, this this is a troubling development. Iran, it's so troubling that Iran denies this. They publicly <laughs> deny that they're doing this. They understand this is a bad image for them, but of course they are doing it. Right. So uh, again this week, every time Vladimir Putin talks about Ukraine, he can't help but put a tease out there about the use of nuclear weapons. Joe, you and I've talked about this before. Yeah. If cornered, is it still possible that Putin would be, um, whatever the word is, brash enough or dumb enough to use tactical nuclear weapons? And if so, what do we do? We can't rule it out, but I think the chances of him using these weapons has gone down. And I think we have to adjust our analysis based on what we're seeing. So while many of us were very concerned about the use of these, and you and I talked about how how they could be used. In fact, I turned that conversation into an op-ed for the Washington Post, which ran a couple of, of months ago. I think what we're seeing now is a combination of factors that indicate that the chances of amusing this are much less now than they were then. And I say this because, number one, you see his language changing on this, whereas in the first six months of the war, there was a, almost a, a daily brag or boast or threat from Washington, from uh, Moscow Mm -hmm. about using these nuclear weapons. That's been toned down. He's actually been saying, no, we're not crazy enough to use these. Um, But but more, I think it's the result of three factors. The pace of the war, the limited utility of these weapons, and the understanding of what the consequences would be. And by Uh pace of the war, I mean that Putin is losing, but he's losing slowly. This is not the Cuban Missile Crisis where mm-hmm. it all mm-hmm. uh, you know went went down in 13 days and where there was a, a sudden incident like a Russian trawler approaching the Navy picket line that would force you to use a weapon or lose and or retreat. In this case, he's losing slowly, and you know you can't. The way he lost in the Battle of Kiev or the Battle of Kharkiv or the Battle of Kherson, lo- losing, forced to retreat, but not a catastrophic loss. If, if, the, if the war continues this way, that he's slowly pushed back, it's like a, a frog being slowly boiled in water. There's no point where you think you have to use the weapon. And then second, you know, what would you use it for? How would, you, how would the use of this weapon change the course of the battle? It's, it's not at all clear that this could win the war for him. And finally, if the consequences. I think the Biden administration has done an excellent job deterring Putin from his use by clearly outlining it, both in personal meetings. We now know there have been numerous mm-hmm. meetings between U.S. officials and Russia, and in public statements, the economic consequences, a complete embargo, you would just seal Russia off from the world, the diplomatic consequences. You've heard China's leader, including uh, uh, Xi, say that Russia should not use a nuclear weapon. No one should ever use a nuclear weapon. He'd be diplomatically, economically isolated. And then, of course, what you and I discussed, there are many, many conventional military options that the West would have to respond to a nuke. All of those things, I think, make it increasingly unlikely that Putin 
would use a nuclear weapon, which then opens up the prospect that he could, yes, lose this war, retreat to to Russian uh, territory, mm-hmm. leave mm-hmm. Ukrainian territory with the, and accept that defeat because using a nuclear weapon simply isn't an option. So this war in Ukraine, Joe, you and I could go a couple of hours talking about this, but yeah. but for our, the limited time in our podcast, uh, I... I I hate to do it, but want to move on to because yeah, sure. there's several, so many other hotspots to touch on. You mentioned President G, and I was going to ask you about that later, but let's go there right now. Here he is in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia yeah. welcoming the president of China. I mean, I I have to ask as a total layman in this, what is Saudi Arabia up to? This is a longtime ally of ours. We, ally of ours. We've done so much. Uh, and a lot of people not happy with all the support we've given Saudi Arabia. And yet in the last year, you know, Joe Biden went there, one of his first foreign trips. Um, so did Donald Trump in one of his first trips, right? Mm-hmm. But in the last year, they cut oil production, which raised gas prices here. And now they're playing footsie with um, a guy who's, well, not necessarily, maybe not, he's not our enemy, but he's not our friend either. What's Saudi Arabia up to? What about this? new relationship? Well, MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. has long had this um, turn east strategy where he wants to increase Saudi's ties to both mm-hmm. China and Russia. And uh, d- At the expense it, of their ties to the United States? Or to gain leverage over their ties. I mean, it's kind of a flexible uh, strategy. But increasingly, yes, I think that's what's going on, that he is starting to make a choice, as he did when he refused to uh, increase oil supplies before the, mm-hmm. the, the midterm elections. This was a very political move. This They claimed yeah. it was just about price. But no, this was a direct hit on Biden and a direct you know, rebuff of Biden's advances. So that that's number one. Number two. Number two, you know, I think he, he believes that that's where the markets are in the future. Uh, I think that might be questionable now that you have mm-hmm. Russia, you know, mm-hmm. the economy can, very constrained and China, you see now beset with um, the, the economic contractions due to their policy on COVID containment. Um, but that's where he thinks in general, that's where the money is. So in some way, his policy is following the money and increasingly, you know, it's it's about um, we're buffing Western diplomatic pressures on human rights, on the way he's he, mm-hmm. the, the, the closed nature of the Saudi system, and he's going thinks he can find much more support with the autocrats in Beijing and in Moscow. And I guess Xi sees it as a right a coup for him. Uh, extending his influence in an area of the world where they haven't been uh, maybe that present, uh, helping both their economic and military goals. Right? That's exactly right. For, for Xi, this is part of his long-term strategy. You see it implemented in the Belt and Road uh, policies, You know, extending aid to uh, uh, the global South countries in order to build China's presence in Africa, in Southern Asia, and in the Middle East, a particularly important market for China, which remember remains a, a huge importer of oil. So this is a very important area for them and will be during most of Xi's lifetime. So 
he that's exactly right. He's hoping to build up those ties. That's why he personally goes to the region. That's why he's personally having these meetings. This is the, this is the first extended uh, overseas trip that he's had uh, since uh, the COVID lockdowns began. And this is where he chose to go. Now, moving uh, also in that region, Joe, you just got back from uh, a long visit to Israel. And oh, I yeah. have to ask you, so here the Israelis have turned I, I don't know what, for the third or fourth time to Benjamin Netanyahu to put together a government. And from what we see, the government he's trying to put together is filled with very extremist right-wing um, characters who at one time wouldn't even been have been considered to be part of the Israeli government. Uh, what's going on? You were there. What did you What did you hear? And um, what's the reaction among the Israeli people? Somewhat disbelief that this has happened. I mean, you know the way the Israeli elections work is you don't know who you're not. You're voting for parties, and so yeah. you don't know until after the election's over which parties have gotten the most votes. And Netanyahu, in his this is what he excels at. He's a brilliant political tactician, he put together a coalition of, of these uh, parties that excluded some of his former partners in the center on the left, of course. Um, and, and he's put together the most extreme right-wing government Israel's ever seen. And that's in terms of what the, the the particular individuals, but also the platforms that they represent. These are people, for example, in the religious Zionism party, represented by a guy named Shmotrik. They they stand for expelling Arabs. Period. Get them all out of the country. That's his policy that he wants. Uh, he wanted to be the defense minister. He ended up becoming the finance minister in the cold. None, none of this has, has been formally finalized yet, but we expect that sometime this week. Um, he's going to be the finance minister, and he's been given control over some of the security arrangements in the occupied West Bank. You know, so, so he, he, is, he has led violent settler demonstrations against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Now he's going to be in charge of those forces. So you can mm. imagine the, what, what might be what might be about to happen. As well, you have um, a, a fellow named Ben Gvir, who's another uh, extremist, and he's been given the foreign ministry. So this is this is going to be a very rocky um, path forward, both for Israel domestically and what we're about to see on the ground in terms of settlements, occupation, uh, policies towards both secular Jews. Remember, these are religious parties that want to, for example, stop public transportation on the Sabbath because it goes against their religious views and what it's going to mean for the 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 uh, occupied Palestinians and the Israeli Palestinians, those li living in Arab cities, Arab villages within Israel itself. And it's going to be a tremendous challenge. Some people think it might become the biggest foreign policy challenge for President Biden. How do you deal with an Israel? We've always been, you know, we've always treated as a special ally, shared values. We don't share these values. This is not the, the, the democratic government we've been used to. However, conservative, at least it believed in basic democratic principles. These guys right. don't. Uh, and a secular, secular, democratic, uh, you know, ally uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it looks like, a, I mean, these people espouse the, it, it seems to me, the same platform as Mayor Kahana, right? I mean, uh, who, who was considered a nut 
by most that is Israelis. absolutely true that is absolutely true this and and they hold up there was a Kahanist follower that massacred, I think, 26 Palestinians in, in a mosque about 25 mm-hmm. years ago. And he's still he's held up as a hero by several of these parties. They have pictures of him in their in their offices. So that's the kind of people we're dealing with. People who think that organized violence against Palestinians is perfectly acceptable because it's in the interest of creating the, the greater uh, biblical Israel that they believe is their right. And Netanyahu has had many opportunities in his several uh, terms as prime minister to to reach a, or at least to seek, right, a peace agreement with the Palestinians. He's never been interested in it, has he? No, he never has. He's, I mean, at this point, this is weird to think about, but Netanyahu is probably the left flank of the government that he's organizing. I mean, that's that's how bad this is. And that doesn't mean he's interested in peace with the Palestinians. He's just not interested that much in provoking um, a, a third intifada. So he, he might he's going to be trying to restrain some of his alliance partners because his main interest in this election isn't really about anything to do with Israel or Israel occupation. It's about to do with his court case. One of the mm. things he wants to do is stop that. There's a trial underway right now on Netanyahu for misuse of government funds for bribery charges. And he wants to stop that case. And one of the ways he wants to do that is he wants to give the Knesset the authority to overrule judicial proceedings. So in other words, squash the judicial branch of the government by giving the legislative branch the authority to overturn these kind of judicial uh, uh, findings by a simple majority vote, which of course he has in the Knesset. This again is a huge blow against the kind kind of democratic system that we embrace and that up till now Israel has embraced. Do the Israeli people, is this the government that they wanted? And if not, they it seems that they have the opportunity in Israel anytime they want to just throw out the existing government and put in a new one, Joe. So what do you think Netanyahu's uh, lifespan is going to be, this, this new government? Well, I have to tell you, the Israelis I spoke to were, were all very cynical. And this is the result uh-huh. of years of rotating governing, uh, governance yeah. and governing regimes, right? So how long will this last? Will it work? I, they Right now, I would say overall, the Israeli people collectively are in a, a state of denial. They don't mm. think much is going to change. Mm-hmm. They think that individuals will benefit you know, corruptly from their their offices, but they don't expect much to change either with the Palestinians um, or, or with their form of government. I think they underestimate the, uh, the, the, the goals of the people that are now in office, what their reaction will be once these policies start to hit, you know, rubber hits the road. I, I, I don't know, but you're absolutely right. Uh, he's going. Netanyahu only has a fragile majority. I think it's four mm-hmm. votes in the Knesset, and one one party alone, just by pulling out of that coalition, could bring the government down. Joe Sirnsioni, our guest, national security expert, and uh, he, he's uh, actually the foreign policy guru of the uh, Bill Press Pod. That's uh, how he's best known, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Joe, well, there's a lot more important things I want to ask you about, including a major, major uh, achievement. 
of the Biden administration on the foreign policy level this week. Uh, but let's take a quick break and then we'll be back and pick up our conversation. You know, friends, this is the time of the year uh, when we all try to get those uh, charitable contributions in uh, for two reasons. One, to help those great causes, but also to save a little bit on taxes before the end of the year. Well, here's one favorite of mine and Carol's, which I've recommended to you before and come back to you again. We can't do enough to help the world's central kitchen led by the great Jose Andres. I mean, friends, you know it. Wherever people are in trouble, suffering from some crisis, either a man-made crisis or a natural disaster, Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen are there on the front lines. They're there still in the war in Ukraine. They're there for the flooding in Pakistan. They were there for the hurricane in Florida. Their website, wck.org. Please check it out, wck.org, the World Central Kitchen, and send them whatever help you can for this worldwide global humanitarian effort. They're the best. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. Our guest today, national security expert uh, Joe Sirincioni, former president of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Joe, again, thanks so much for, for joining us. So um, the Biden, Joe Biden goes out. Uh, this is uh, one morning this week, and he says, "Okay, folks, I just talked to Brittany Griner. She is safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home." But Victor Bout Boot brother was on his way home too. Joe, was this a good deal? Oh, this was an amazing deal, a tremendous victory for uh, President uh, Biden. I think all Americans should have joy in their hearts to see this wonderful person, not just an Olympic gold medalist, not just a, the biggest star in the Women's National Basketball Association, but, but uh, a, a wonderful human being freed from nine months of unjust uh, captivity in, in Putin's Russia and looking at 
nine years of uh, forced labor in one of their penal colonies. She's now home free in Texas, undergoing uh, medical exams and expect to be reunited with her loved one soon. Yeah. So what do you say to these critics who say, well, yeah, but we left Paul Whelan behind. So, you know, we should not have gone for this deal. Well, this I think the homecoming is being spoiled by what I think is a cynical right-wing uh, exploitation of this deal. Look, there, you can raise honest questions about whether it was fair to exchange uh, a notorious arms dealer, Victor Boot, a man known as the Merchant of Death, the basis for the character that Nicolas Cage played in his uh, 2004 mm-hmm. film, Lord of War. This was a very dangerous man. He was he was apprehended in a sting operation in 2008, where he was making a deal for tens of thousands of AK-47s and millions of rounds of ammunition to be sold to Colombian rebels. And when told that some of these surface-to-air rockets that they wanted, also anti-aircraft rockets that he was going to sell them, might be used against Americans, he said, good, we have the same enemy. So this this was a major arms dealer. But that was then. That was in 2008. That was in 2009. He's been in prison ever since. He's been serving a 25-year prison sentence. He was going to get out anyway by the end of this decade. He'd be eligible for parole mm-hmm. in 29. So maybe, you know, six more years. Of a... And is he useful now? Is he a danger now? I doubt any of his contacts are actually relevant to the kinds of um, weapons that Putin needs. This was more about one KGB agent, Putin, getting another KGB linked uh, uh, asset boot uh, out of out of prison. It's a victory for Putin. Yes, it is. He scored major in Moscow, but and it's unfair. But it was the only way to get Brittany Griner home. And so if you're president and you're faced with the choice of freeing this guy that you really don't want to free or leaving an innocent American in a Russian prison for nine years, you're going to take that deal. You're going to take that deal. And it, it's true. The Biden administration wanted to get Paul Whelan out as well, a, a, for, a former Marine convicted, convicted of espionage in Russia, also unjustly held. But they couldn't get it. I mean, you want that. Yeah. Putin just wouldn't agree. They haven't given up on Whelan. There are other prisoner exchanges that could happen in the future. I, I have no doubt that we'll see Whelan back home maybe as soon as next year. Uh, I thought it's significant, too, that Paul Whelan's family has said uh, that the Biden administration, they give credit to Joe Biden for doing everything he can to get their uh, their brother uh, out uh, of a Russian prison. Uh, and they also point out that Donald Trump didn't seem interested no. at all. Remember, right. It's right. In that w- case. Whelan was arrested in 2018. So Trump had plenty of opportunity to try to make a deal, including exchanging him for boot, never lifted a finger. So that's another uh, point against the right wing uh, argument over this. You know, uh, overall, I think it's, it's, a, it's a shame that the right wing is feeding into Putin's agenda. Remember, this is a man who excels at provoking dissent among Americans. I don't think it's a coincidence that he wanted to leave a white male former Marine in jail while freeing, exchanging a black, (laughs) right, uh, lesbian Mm -hmm. uh, uh, celebrity. I mean, he knows what he's doing. And unfortunately, the right wing is playing right into that with this manufactured uh, dissent. 
I think it's going to get overwhelmed in the long run. I mean, they're already every NBA game that's going to be played has got, uh, you know, welcome home, Brittany uh, uh, yeah. celebrations going on during the, the, the mm -hmm. intro to the games. And you're going to see more of that. And once she's out and on the media circuit again, I think that and just the people getting to, to see her for the warm, wonderful human being that she is, is and seeing her with her wife, Cheryl, and, and the obvious love they share, I think that's going to overwhelm some of the political dissent or, or points that the right wing is trying to score. All right. So, Joe, we've worked ourselves up to the biggest foreign <laughs> policy global story of all, the World Cup. We're down to the semifinals. Joe, uh, it is amazing, I find, to watch all these countries. Once they get on that field, man, no matter how big they are or how powerful they are, everybody's on the same level, right? You know, you got little Croatia up against mighty whatever, Brazil or Argentina or yeah, France. They'll be facing Argentina. Yeah, that's right. They'll be facing Argentina in the semifinal. And and little Morocco, you know. Yeah. Going up against France. I mean, this is this is huge. It's a the Moroccan victory is is probably the biggest sort of geopolitical story because it's the first time that any African nation, any Arab nation has reached the semifinal stages in the World Cup, which has been, of course been going on for decades. So it's a breakthrough. It's a it's a, it's a source of, of national pride. Um, there were thousands and thousands of Moroccan fans and anybody in the global south is now all behind Morocco. You know, let's go Mo Morocco. And, and, they, and they are a very good team. I don't know if you watch their game, but they 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 have a stifling defense that uh, was just, you know, very, very effective in, in their recent wins. Uh, this this is going to be a fun game. And it also, you know, this it's it's. There are no political banners allowed, but you see, in addition mm -hmm. to the Moroccan flags, you see Palestinian flags being raised during the celebrations after after the games. Um, the, the Palestinian presence is quite strong, and the sentiment for pro-Palestine pro is quite strong in some of the in the especially the Arab audiences in the World Cup, it's interesting to see. It's not something that Qatar, the government hosting the games, wants to see, but it's what the fans want to bring. Yeah, and you wonder what impact these games may have on a country like Qatar, which I think the you know the the dark cloud over these games is that this is a country where they're not allowed to drink alcohol, right? They can't show the rainbow flag. You know, nobody can admit to being gay or or whatever, right? And I think even sex outside of marriage is is forbidden in that country. I mean, um, it 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 raises that in the world light too, and not in a very positive way. I wonder what the long term impact of that might be. Right, they they are trying very hard. You know, if you watch the games, you're subjected to the. The, uh, the promos for Qatar uh, and, yeah. and the images. And it's, um, I haven't been there. I've been to the United Arab Emirates. I've been to Dubai. Uh, I, and it is, they, they are impressive achievements, impressive what these countries have done over the last few decades, sort of economically, but socially, yeah. oh man, it is still grim. It's not a place that you or I would like to live. So, Joe, let me ask you, uh, we're now two years into the Biden administration uh, taking over after Donald Trump had kind of trashed all of our relations with all of our allies around the world. 
Um, what's your report card for Joe Biden on the foreign policy front? We spend so much time talking about domestic policy, rightfully so. Maybe it impacts our lives more. But uh, our standing in the world is so important. Um, yeah. What's, uh, what, what's your report card on Joe Biden so far? Impressive. Uh, both in, in the personnel that he's appointed. Uh, we've talked about this in the show before, you know, very high quality, perhaps the, the, the best equipped national security team since George H.W. Bush uh, in terms of ex- experience and skill and just downright professionalism. Very few gaffes, a few glaring mistakes. You know, withdrawing from Afghanistan was the right thing, thing to do, but he did it in probably the worst way possible, but recovered from that those mistakes has handled these this uh, trying to first prevent the war against Ukraine with disclosure of intelligence assessments, for example, and personal warnings to Putin not to do this and to alerting Ukraine that it was coming, and then mobilizing perhaps the biggest, strongest uh, Western coalition that we've seen in decades to try to stop this, managing it really near perfectly, keeping everybody united, keeping you giving Ukraine the weapons it needs without provoking, without escalating the war to some of the risks that we discussed earlier. Relations with China came out strong against them, sharp rebukes of China policy, but now working diplomatically, as he says, to manage the competition, prevent it from becoming a, a, a confrontation. Generally, very good relations with the with the global south. Some people mm-hmm. do better there, um, but making overtures uh, to Africa, for example, allowing just recently the, admitting the African Union to join the meetings of the G20, something African nations have wanted for a very long time. Not even Obama did that, or any other a previous president had done that. And and managing the the of course we can't ignore the COVID ep- ep- epidemic. I mean, the U.S., for all its failings there, has probably managed this epidemic better than than most other nations, with the exceptions of some smaller nations like New Zealand and the Scandinavian nations, have managed this very well, given the hand they were dealt to two years ago when there was no active, effective management of the uh, epidemic. (laughs) So overall, I give him... Very, very high marks, and so far preventing the U.S. from going into a recession, um, which, of course, is important in global politics as well. That's a good positive note to end the year on, <laughs> Joe, Joe Sirisioni. Thank you so much for all that you do, and thank you uh, for uh, sharing all of those insights with us today on the uh, on the Bill Press Pod. Joe, uh, happy holidays. Hope to catch up with you uh, early in the new year. Happy holidays to you too, Bill. Thank you so much for having me on today and all the other times we've been together. And that's it for today's podcast on a foreign policy look with uh, Joe Sirincioni. Thank you so much for joining us. And now we're going to uh, make a little adjustment for the holidays. So our roundtable this week is going to be coming to you on Thursday, not on Friday. This Thursday, roundtable with three of our top Washington political reporters looking at this very last week for 2022 of the House and the Senate. Until then, take care of yourselves. Enjoy the holidays. We'll see you Thursday for our roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.